this week on the Science of Politics, Explaining the Urban-Rural Divide. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Election maps are showing stark divides between liberal cities and conservative countrysides, advantaging Republicans in our geographic electoral system. Why are Democrats concentrating in cities, and how do the U.S. trends compare to the global patterns? Today, I talked to Jonathan Rodin of Stanford University about his new book, Why Cities Lose. He finds increasingly concentrated left parties around the world, disadvantaging liberal cities in political competition. His explanation draws back to unionized industrial railroad hubs, but he finds that today's growing divisions reflect the changing cultural values of the party's new coalitions. I also talked to our own Will Wilkinson of the Niskanen Center about his new report, The Density Divide. He finds that U.S. geographic areas are becoming economically and psychologically distinct, with cities concentrating those open to new experience and working in the technology-driven economy, and rural areas retaining those averse to social and economic change. They both find our geographic divides central to contemporary politics, including the election of Donald Trump. Wilkinson says urbanization and geographic polarization help explain where we are. I think the biggest takeaway of the paper is that we've largely overlooked the extent to which the long trend of urbanization, the glacial shift of the population slowly drifting from the country to the city, sort of overlooked the extent to which that may have segregated our population along the lines of attributes that predict whether people are going to urbanize or not things like ethnicity, personality, and level of education. And so consequently, I think we may have overlooked the extent to which, you know, the current era of hyperpolarization and the rise of populist nationalism is partly a consequence of this self-selected spatial segregation on these attributes. So what I call the density divide in the paper refers to the cultural and political polarization along the lines of population density. You know, you're going to be talking to you know Jonathan Rodden. I draw pretty heavily on his work, and it was one of the inspirations for this paper. You know, he shows a an incredible relationship between population density and party vote share. Just the more dense a place is, the more democratic it is. The less dense it is, the more Republican it is. And you see that pattern kind of cropping up more or less everywhere, and at pretty much every scale. And there's something incredibly striking about that. I was you know, very much struck by the, by the returns from the last election, from the, from the 2016 presidential election, to see just how few counties Hillary Clinton had won uh, compared to Donald Trump, but how many more people that the Clinton counties contained and how much more of national economic output they produce. There's a puzzling pattern there that I think needs to be explained. And so the linchpin of my argument is the hypothesis that the that the attributes that explain patterns of urbanizing migration also increasingly account for both party affiliation and growing regional economic divergence. And these things are just pulling high density cities and lower density exurbs and rural areas further and further apart culturally and politically. Rodin's book says urban-rural divides started for different reasons than they are continuing, but the trends have big implications. 
Sure. The book has, it has two components that are reflected in the title and the subtitle of the book. The big, you know, the big question of why cities lose is the second part of the book. But the first part of the book is reflected in the subtitle of Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Political Divide. So the book has these two parts. And the first one is trying to understand where did this urban-rural polarization that we see in American politics today come from? And although I focus a lot on the United States, it's really a, a broadly comparative book, and it's asking a similar question about a lot of other industrialized societies. Focusing a lot on the U.S., though, I, I argue that uh, this urban-rural divide really started in the industrial era and started in the, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century in a time of working class mobilization when parties of the, of, that became parties of the left started forming alliances with labor unions and with workers. And that, was, that activity was largely concentrated in cities. And so this is how left parties start to become urban parties. But that's not where the story ends. It really is just kind of where it begins. Uh, the correlation between, between urban residents and democratic voting in the United States really increases a lot in the 80s and 90s, a time when labor unions uh, are, are on the decline. So there's a, there's a story about the rise of new issues and the, the reorientation of the parties around a set of new issues, and people's preferences on those issues are correlated with population density. So that the parties kind of, as they, as they latch on to new issues and new groups over time, the Democrats become increasingly urban, the Republicans become increasingly rural. And so that's the first section of the book is explaining how all that works and some of the variations on that theme. And the second big part of the book tries to explain the implications of that for representation. Short version of the argument is that you end up with left voters, uh, Democrats in the U.S., who are highly concentrated in space. And they're concentrated then once we draw districts, they're concentrated within electoral districts. And that's something that is only furthered by gerrymandering. And so that makes it hard for them to transform their votes into seats. Another thing it makes it hard for them to do is to come up with a, with a good platform that uh, helps them win in the uh, pivotal districts. And it also sows the seeds of a lot of uh, internal division within left parties. And so I trace out some of the current divisions that are, that are plaguing the Democratic Party today and, and argue that's something that's really quite common to left parties in industrialized societies with majoritarian winner-take-all districts of the kind that the U.S. has. They both started with an interest in economic patterns where cities are gaining. I think a, a lot of it started with an interest uh, on my part with economic geography and reading things like Alfred Marshall and then the the, the kind of new economic geography, starting with Paul Krugman and others, thinking about agglomeration effects. And, and you know, I was really fascinated by the idea of agglomeration effects in, in economics. And then thinking about that in the, in the era of heavy industry and manufacturing, and then thinking about that in the current moment of agglomeration in the knowledge economy. And it just seemed like there had to be some political implications of that. There has to be, you know, when, especially if those activities start to map onto the party system, then the, you know, the concentration of economic activity has to have some kind of uh, implication for, for politics uh, and, and trying to figure out what that, what that might be. I think that's really where I started. Uh, at the same time that you know, we're all looking at these electoral maps on, on, uh, on election night and kind of puzzling over those and uh, kind of putting those things together is, is the origin of this book. Wilkinson elaborates on the economic advantages of cities. The divergence of urban and more rural economies is a pretty long-standing trend, and it just keeps getting worse and worse, and it just doesn't seem like it's going to get any better anytime soon. So, I mean, the, but 
over the long term, the, this 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 shift, this increasing concentration of economic production in cities is is a function. It's you know a cause and effect, and an effect of urbanization. It's part of why urbanization is happening in the first place. You know, in the first instance, it's just a shift from a pretty thoroughly agricultural economy to a more manufacturing based economy, which requires that you have you know, a large concentrated workforce, it all needs to be, you know, all the the suppliers of all the inputs need to be fairly close together. They need to be near routes of shipping and transit. And so there's a, there's a, you know, manufacturing economies tend to strongly concentrate. And over the past several decades, we've shifted even further away from an agricultural economy and away from a, a manufacturing-based economy, or at least an economy that's based in manufacturing employment toward what people call the information economy and, and, and knowledge work. And so our economy is more and more dominated by very highly skilled, highly educated workers and then a bunch of less skilled, less educated service workers. And that has increased the concentration of economic production a little bit counterintuitively, like a lot of the information and communication technology responsible for the current phase of our economy, you know, seems like it, you know, it, it facilitates the sort of thing we're doing now, which is like we're talking to each other from, you know, hundreds of miles away. Uh, you know, I work most of the time from Iowa, but like th these technologies didn't really produce, you know, a, the death of distance. They actually amplified the advantages of clustering people closer together. And part of the reason is that there's a, there's a, there's a skill bias to technology. So the productivity of better educated workers is augmented more by each new technological development, but the productivity of those people is enhanced yet further by being near other people with similar skill sets. And so you get efficiencies from clusters of specialized educated workers and so you you know they economists call it you know agglomerative efficiencies you get a higher rate of individual production but you also get sort of spillovers from you know growth is driven more and more by just people coming up with new ideas but through innovation not just you know increasing the output of every worker per second right like it's it's it's, you know, coming up with new ideas of, you know, new products, new methods of production, everything that goes into the economy. And you get those ideas faster when you have the smartest people all, you know, butting heads together day by day. Um, so this whole kind of dynamic is explained, you know, extremely well by Enrico Moretti in his book, uh, The New Geography of Work. Part of that story that he tells is a, is a sorting story, a geographic sorting story about educated workers, that, that as economic output and growth depends more and more on an educated workforce, but the wage bonus for a higher level of education keeps going up and up in the agglomerations of specialized workers, it draws those better educated people to those clusters and out of the rest of the economy. And so those places get a lot richer and everywhere they've moved away from kind of goes through a, a sort of negative feedback loop, you know, into stagnation and decline. So you get this big 
separation of these different parts of the economy. Rodin wanted to challenge traditional explanations for the divide that are built only on movers. People just sort of assume that when they see a lot of Democrats concentrated in cities and, and a lot of Republicans in rural areas, the, the word people use to describe that phenomenon, they just describe it as sorting. So when we talk about geography versus gerrymandering as an explanation for, for the transformation of votes to seats, people sort of use sorting as a shorthand for this geography argument. And, and so I think a lot of that comes from a very influential book by Bill Bishop called The Big Sort. The sense is that you know people from rural Nebraska who had you know different views than everybody else in rural Nebraska kind of picked up and moved to Omaha or they moved to New York, and that kind of movement is what creates the political pattern we see. And I don't dispute at all that mobility is part of the story. I think it might even be a fairly important part of the story, but but I think there's something else that that can't possibly explain everything that we see. There's just not enough movement, not enough people actually move, and fewer people are moving over time, and especially during the period of rapid urban-rural polarization. I just don't think we see the kind of populations, uh, population movements we would need to see for that to be the explanation. So I argue that it has also to do with the kind of sorting that takes place of people into the parties, even, even people who don't move. So that, it, that uh, as rural areas have become a lot more Republican, it's not just the case that people, are, uh, that people who uh, have left-leaning preferences among them pick up and leave, but it's that there's been a general reorientation of, of, of rural places toward the Republican Party, and people within cities have become more and more likely to vote for Democrats, even those that have not moved. Wilkinson was unsatisfied with the explanations for Trump's election. The immediate inspiration for the paper was just the election of Donald Trump, which you know came relatively closely on the heels of Brexit, which I think caught a lot of people by surprise. And you know those two things have inspired a you know huge amount of interest in the rise of populism, how polarization contributes to the rise of populism, the increasing salience of parties that are organized around, uh, you know, a strong sense of ethno-nationalist identity. And, and, and so I, you know, like, like a lot of people was just like, like, why the heck is this happening, right? How did we get this guy as our president? So that, you know, that, that was the first thing. That was something that, that I wanted to have explained. And I wasn't finding a lot of the stock explanations that came out right away that persuasive. You know, it's you know, it's a backlash against political correctness, or it's a backlash against demographic change and immigration, or 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 it's you know, people reacting to the immiseration of neoliberal globalism or whatever. N none of those seem to be hitting at the phenomenon at the right level for me. So how did the urban-rural divide get so large? Rodin starts with industrialization, where northern cities first became liberal. Yeah, there's kind of a growing literature in, in economics and political science looking at these long historical legacies. And this is one that I've been kind of puzzling over for quite a while. Look at the correlation between the location of 19th century rail nodes and you know, the proximity to 19th century railroads and, and current democratic voting is really pretty striking. And so I'm viewing those railroad nodes from the early 20th century as essentially kind of a proxy for where the, where the factories were in the era of industrialization, which then goes along with 
these, this early labor mobilization. But it also goes along with a number of other things, including the built environment. So the growth of a lot of rental housing, of dense, affordable rental housing in proximity to those old factories. And once you build those things, they become very resilient and they're still there. So kind of clustered along those old rail lines are a lot of uh, dense housing units that are still affordable and they still attract young people and immigrants and uh, in some cases minorities. And this and these things have the, they have a long legacy of, of that kind. So some of the places that had this early industrialization and now have very democratic patterns of voting, the type of population that lives there is completely different. You know, I use the example of Reading, Pennsylvania in the book, a place that is now essentially a Spanish-speaking city. But there are other places where the population has changed a lot less. And we might think about a story more like um, kind of a uh, the passing of party ID, uh, almost like religion from one family to another. And I think there are some places where you can still see some of that. And some of it might actually be through institutions like labor unions, even though they're they're quite a bit weakened. The places where public sector, I mean, where private sector unions were strong in the early 20th century are places that today have especially strong public sector unions. And public sector union members tend to be overwhelmingly democratic. So there are a few different mechanisms there that might link the distant past with the present. The urban-rural divide spread from the north, Rodin says, with racial and religious change. But as I didn't realize you know, how how pronounced the urban-rural divide already started, you know, it was emerging in a place like New York quite early. New York and Massachusetts, it was already around even before the New Deal, and maybe had a different sort of, you know, had roots more in ethnic politics and the nature of, uh, of, of machine politics in those places. But in the, in the industrialized places, once the New Deal hit, it, it really, the, the urban-rural cleavage started to emerge, but it was kind of, it was really limited to those places. One of the interesting things that happens is that, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the New Deal era, in order to get the New Deal agenda passed, the Democrats formed this uh, fascinating coalition between urban workers and Southern segregationists. And the Democratic Party is, is, is very different things to different people in different places. But the story that Eric Schickler tells in his book that I think really is what moves this, what starts to change this is that urban workers in, in the North, many of them are African-Americans and they start pushing the Democratic Party to, to uh, take up the civil rights issue. And the Democratic Party slowly adopts a new set of platforms and uh, over a long period of time starts to, starts to lose the, the, the South. And we have this long period of, of realignment in the South, the end of which, you know, there's also this, this, uh, this, uh, Introduction of the religious dimension, which is highly correlated with uh, with um, population density, and as that, all of that sort of emerges in the 80s and 90s, the South starts to become very much like the rest of the country. That kind of unique pattern in the South, where the Democrats were more rural, that really falls apart, and it falls apart in a number of other places as well. And so we see this convergence, and it's and it's related to the larger nationalization of politics in the U.S., where it all sort of snaps together into this single dimension. Wilkinson points out that the rural-urban divide took a lot longer to get so strong in the U.S. Robin's book emphasizes the relationship between, you know, like left parties and cities is very longstanding and, and, and deep and robust. And you know, one of the peculiar things about the United States is that a rural urban divide in partisan alignment hasn't, you know, took way longer than, a, than in a lot of places to 
really show up for you know all sorts of contingent historical reasons. And so you know one thing I try to emphasize you know when people ask like you know, urbanization is happening everywhere, this is a pretty universal phenomenon. Are you going to see the same thing in every country? And what well, well you're not because every country has a different political history. Like a, a lot of my story, which we haven't really touched on here is 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 really has to do with you know with ethnicity has to do with the you know the the concentration of the non-white population in cities and then the the separation of the white population between urban areas and non-urban areas that that population has specifically become polarized and and so the cities were already relatively liberal parties and and a lot of the changes that I'm trying to describe are you know, very fundamentally caused by the reasons that people are gravitating towards cities the transformations in the economy the increasing output and efficiency of urban relative to rural economic production these long-term trends that are causing some of these divisions are partly a function of the the nature of cities and the attraction of cities. So the things that are causing the coalitions are also causing a lot of the the background economic and cultural changes that parties are aligning around. But today, Rodin says, the density matters even for very small towns. I've noticed that the relationship is there really in almost every county in a place like Pennsylvania and some of these industrialized states. One of the things I have seen is the relationship is a lot stronger. It's a lot sharper in places that did have a lot of industrialization. So I do think that early industrialization is part of the story. But the fact that it's there, even in these very small places, and it's certainly, you know, it's there even in places that are, that are overwhelmingly white. So we can't really rely on a story just about race. And certainly a lot of these places, it's not that the urban core is somehow full of hipsters and knowledge economy professionals. That is not the way I would characterize places like Lima, Ohio, or even Muncie, Indiana, which has a has a, a university. But you know, all of these kinds of towns still, the, the urban core, if you want to call it that, is is still quite democratic. And you see that that same pattern where as you move out from the city center and into the s- suburbs and out into the periphery, the Republican vote share kind of increases in this according to the kind of an exponential function. Rodin finds a few countries like Sweden that don't match the global pattern. But that shows that electoral systems matter. You know, I would go to uh, Scandinavia and present this, and then people would say, "Well, what about the, what about the left-wing forestry workers and landless laborers in in Norway, uh, and what about the urban conservatives in Sweden?" And I, I do think so. This is something I've gotten very interested in, and I'm continuing to work on. But I, I think there's something really important. This is where I think it's important to focus on the electoral institutions uh, and party systems. The thing that's different about Sweden is that it has a multi-party system. Uh, And if we just talk about the world in terms of left and right, we make this observation that much of the kind of higher income downtown core of Stockholm votes for parties that we might call right parties. And the reason we might call them that is because they typically coalesce with uh, other right wing parties when they form governments in Sweden. But if you look at the ideology of the parties that people in 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 Stockholm uh, vote for these are these are liberal parties or you know these are parties that have uh, left of center 
what in the U.S. spectrum certainly would be considered left of center preferences on social issues, but they have moderate, maybe center right preferences on economic issues. And you might very well imagine if we had a multi-party system that a kind of a liberal party like that might do pretty well in some of the high income knowledge economy city centers in the U.S. as well. So you know, we see something similar with Greens and Free Democrats and others that have, have taken over the, the political ideology spectrum in central cities in, in uh, other European cities. So a, a good example of how this works is if we look at some recent elections in Austria, in multi-party competition in the proportional representation elections for the legislature, we see right-wing parties or you know parties that are kind of center-right doing pretty well in Vienna and some of the higher-income urban neighborhoods. But in a recent presidential election, it went to a second round where there was a green candidate versus a far-right candidate that made it to the second round. And we look at that electoral map, it looks just like a U.S. electoral map, where Vienna, Linz, and Graz vote overwhelmingly for the party of the left, and the rest of the country, all of the rural parts of Austria, vote for the party of the right. So just by changing those electoral institutions and the menu of choices, you create something in Austria that looks just like the U.S., which under normal circumstances, uh, in a multi-party competition, you don't see in Austria. So I think that's... um, that's an important part of the difference between the U.S. and some of these proportional systems. But that said, you know, this urban-rural divide, it is growing around the world in, in lots of different kinds of countries for, for some similar reasons to the United States. Uh, as the knowledge economy sector becomes more dominant and urban areas start to pull ahead and non-metro areas are left behind, the same kind of uh, division that we've seen in the United States is, is developing in lots of other places. And I think it's all a bit more pronounced in the countries that have majoritarian aspects to their political system, like the United States. I think Hungary is a good example. You look at the Hungarian electoral maps and you see a real concentration of support for the left in, in Budapest uh, and a couple of other cities and, and the support for the regime in in. The, basically the rest of the country, and an electoral system that really that really helps the, the right uh, hold on to power. So in that respect, I, th- I don't see the U.S. as really completely distinctive. I think the thing that's most distinctive about it is this combination of presidentialism and a two-party system that really puts all of this on maybe on steroids a bit in the U.S. Wilkinson agrees that the rural-urban divide is very widespread, with some contingency and exceptions that prove the rule. It's hard in that, you know, looking at, you know, in social science to find patterns as robust as the kind that Rodden is seeing. In my paper, I talk about my hometown, Marshalltown, Iowa, uh, which is a town of 27,000 people, and you see this relationship between density and party vote share pretty clearly, and that's interesting, and it defies a lot of people's expectations about what, you know, small Midwestern towns are, you know, you know, Iowa went for Trump and Marshall County went for Trump, but Marshall Town went for Clinton, partly because of the densest part of town went so strongly for Clinton. And, 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 but some, you know, some of those patterns, you know, are a contingent reflection of the history of the development of these cities. So as Rodden points out, like older cities are denser, you know, before you have cars, People have to be closer together in order to you know, get the benefits of proximity. I mean, you can't just drive to work. So the relationship is definitely attenuated just by the you know the date at which the city is founded and whether or not 
it's the the kind of urban plan is based around automobiles or not right like so like when you're looking at some of these arizona examples or just like the sprawl of the southwest it's not it's the the relationship is not as stark you know and it reflects these contingencies about about technology and and what makes sense given certain modes of transport and and certain eras of economic production so it's you're not going to see like a, a you know, incredibly strict law-like relationship but you still see pretty much the same relationship and you just can and you can see the extent to which it depends on you know whether the downtown was a pre-car place or not you know in the united states ethnic minorities are very very heavily clustered in the denser older parts of cities because at least historically not so much the case now that you know de- older depreciating housing stock was more affordable and made it possible for less advantaged communities to cluster but you don't see that same kind of pattern everywhere so in some european cities the minorities tend to be you know arrayed around the suburbs and the cores are dominated by the ethnic majority Roden reviews several explanations for growing geographic polarization, including sorting, context effects, and changing economic interests. You're now getting to the frontier of where the research currently is, and there's a lot that we still don't know. I mean, I'd say there's maybe even more, there are more possibilities than just sort of uh, sorting and context. I would say, you know, there are these stories about sorting where people with different preferences or personality types, and then those things are connected to political behavior, and then they, they move for these, for these various reasons, and that's why we see urban-rural polarization. I think a distinct argument is one that's more about self-interest. I mean, it might just be that that living in a dense environment just creates certain kinds of demands for public goods that aren't there. It just kind of changes the way public goods are provided and the demands for regulation. So, for instance, you know, the fire protection is something that in a rural area you can perhaps achieve through through volunteer mechanisms. Whereas in, in cities, you end up with, with uh, government provision and, and, and public sector unions and all that. So some of it is that that's just a distinct argument, I think, about the, the, the more economic argument about the costs of providing public services and the, and the nature of demands for public services. And then when you talk about contextual effects, I see that as even a separate argument about uh, social networks. And, you know, you kind of place a person in a particular environment and then that, that, that shapes their beliefs through their social interactions. I've offered even another argument, which is that the parties are kind of changing what they emphasize and what their issues, what their platforms are over time. And people sort into these parties as the parties pull apart on different issues. So these things are all possibilities. And, you know, how do we disentangle these? How do we figure out? I think I think all these things are happening. That's the problem. It's just not one or the other. Wilkinson thinks sorting works in tandem with social context to make areas more divergent. If just moving to a city makes you more liberal or staying in a small town just makes you more conservative, and if you just swapped where those people live, their politics would accordingly change, think that these things definitely work in tandem. There's no doubt that people are conformist, that we, you know, very strongly gravitate toward fitting in with whatever group of people we're around. So, like, I have no issue with the idea that that our views and our attitudes and our 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 political opinions are heavily shaped by our social context and the places that we that we live but i do think that we're not like picking up 
on the degree of sorting for like a number of reasons. One is just that, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of this literature doesn't even think about the long-term transformative effects of urbanization and the fact that even, you know, very small differences in the propensity of a certain kind of person to move, a certain kind of person to stay, will just tend to separate populations. And because of the the constancy of urbanization as a kind of background to everything that's happening, I think it's kind of hard to pick up in the way uh, we tend to look at these issues. And then a lot of the studies on on you know specifically like on on ideological migration or whether people are sorting on on partisanship or correlates partisanship are, are are really just kind of methodologically difficult because the you know the units don't stay fixed in the right way geographically. He says basic personality traits may be driving sorting and polarization. I talk a lot about the you know the big five personality attributes. And one of the reasons I focus on that, you know, there's a, there's a huge literature in political psychology that, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, you know, authoritarianism scales, you know, Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory, you know, John Jost's just world theory. But a lot of that stuff feels, you know, pretty ideologically loaded to me. And I, and I, and I worry about it methodologically. The big five personality theory is fairly ideologically neutral. It just, it's not really super theory laden. It's you know kind of falls out of uh, just the the factor analysis that you do to try to figure out what the you know, which traits are relatively uncorrelated with other traits. And these things very strongly predict all sorts of things. Just not they're not invented to explain anything about politics. They you know they help you understand why you know some people do better in school, while some people make more income, while some people, you know, spend more time socializing, why some people are more inclined to have like anxiety disorders. You know, like there's there's a, a, a huge literature, this stuff predicts a lot of stuff. It's robust, it's replicable. And the traits um are fairly deep and stable. So the trait that I concentrate most on, uh, openness to experience, is the one that has the strongest relationship to social liberalism, social conservatism. None of these traits correlate in any very interesting or significant way to positions on economic issues, but they tend to predict in a pretty robust way people's views on, on social issues. And the you know openness to experience in particular is the one that has the deepest relationship to ideology, but also, in a, you know, which plays an important role in my story, to attitudes about in-groups and out-groups, warmness towards other ethnicities, tolerance of diversity, residential preferences that have to do with preferences for ethnic homogeneity or ethnic diversity. And that trait in particular is the most heritable of any of them, which is interesting. Like these things do change. Like if you go to college, your openness goes up. If you move to a big city, your openness goes up. So you have these context effects on these traits. They're not completely fixed, but as close to as fixed as, you know, something like IQ, which has very strong effects on lots of things. And one of the things that really moved me looking into the, just doing this research was this work in geographic psychology or psychological geography, whichever one comes first, that shows a 
pretty clear relationship between the propensity to migrate at all and the same trait that predicts social liberalism or conservatism, as well as a, you know, it, and this is something that, I, that I'm looking forward to seeing more work done on because it hasn't been done at this level in the United States. Some of Peter Renfro's work at Cambridge, you see the, the distribution of personality types or the typical personality type like in a city like London lines up with density in an incredible way that, uh, you know, it, it looks like uh, the, the distribution of openness in London looks a lot like just the map for population density, which looks a lot like the map for, you know, Brexit or Remain. And, 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 and I think there's something relatively deep about that set of connections. Rodin is open to Wilkinson's focus on psychology as part of the broader puzzle. I'm fascinated by this this new literature at the intersection of psychology and geography that Will is drawing upon, and I, I think there's there's probably something to it. You know, and when you think about it, there's there's probably something different about a person who picks up and moves to a new city to take a job, and and someone who decides to stay where they are, where they are. There's probably uh, something different about those who stayed in Europe and those who moved to the new world uh, in the in the early 20th century in the in the in the 19th century or or those who stayed in the south and those who moved to uh, Chicago during the great migration or the you know the people that moved west in uh, in the westward migration there're probably some psychological characteristics about moving that that are distinctive from the people who who stay behind or you know even just at the most basic level those who stayed on the farm in the industrial era and those who moved to the city and became wage laborers there's probably something about attitudes towards risk openness to new experiences tolerance tolerance for diversity i think that all seems right but of course there are a lot of other differences uh more kind of in in terms of uh, economic conditions and family ties and religions and a host of other factors. So I'm certainly quite open to those arguments, and I think there's probably something to them. But again, you know, I think it can't be all geographic sorting just in, because not enough people move. And however the geographic divides developed, the parties are responding to their changing coalition. Wilkinson sees a common pattern where social issues increase in importance with socioeconomic changes from urbanization. When countries have a relatively high rate of economic growth, you tend to get, you know, general cultural liberalization. People become less concerned with issues of material security, more concerned with issues of the individual self-expression of identity. And, you know, my general view is, is that that kind of dynamic just does push politics over time toward more expressive cultural and social issues that begins to dominate people's attention more and more. It becomes a clearer basis for elites and parties to coordinate coalitions around. Rodin says the constraints of the current Democratic Party are a product of their geography and common for the left globally. One of the things uh, I discovered in the book is that, you know, this divide between AOC and, you know, the squad or the democratic socialists on the one hand and the, the kind of democratic leadership and these candidates who are struggling to try to win in the pivotal suburban districts, like that divide is just central to majoritarian democracies ever since the rise of left parties, ever since the industrial revolution. This is nothing new at all. It's maybe a bit new for us because 
our parties have been so diffuse and meaningless in the past. And so we now actually have national party labels that matter and that are hard for people to run away from. Labor parties have always had this problem. So this kind of, you know, the true believers in the urban core who want to pull the party platform out to kind of a, you know, ownership of the means of production and things like this. The Labor Party has always had that urban kind of impetus coming from its from its core districts in Britain. I think something is true in Australia as well, where there's this intense divide between labor left and the uh, and the centrists, which is really a kind of a, a an urban suburban kind of divide as well. So there is this problem that if you if you adopt the platform preferred by the left tail of the distribution, it, it, or, or even if you don't, if people believe that you do, if the perception is that that's your platform, then you're going to have trouble winning in the, uh, in, the, in the pivotal districts around the middle where you need to win in order to form a majority. And this is an, uh, an insight that uh, Shavorsky and Sprague made in a classic book about electoral socialism called Paper Stones. They didn't really focus on the geography of it, but uh, but this the geography really just heightens this basic problem, where the it, it, where the the left is really kind of torn between being true to its urban base and uh, trying to win elections. Both Rodin and Wilkinson see U.S. electoral institutions as central to the story, limiting change without reforming the rules. Wilkinson sees polarization and democratic disadvantage continuing. Where I see the trend towards you know even greater polarization culturally and politically along these lines, a point that I emphasize toward the end of the paper, which is you know to a large extent the theme of Robin's book, is that the you know the political effects of these things are are you know it's going to be it's going to depend a lot on the relationship that systems of representation have to geography have to, you know, the way it aggregates populations. And our system is just uniquely bad in a lot of ways in terms of its its tendency to exacerbate these problems. We have a, you know, winner-take-all, first-past-the-post system that pretty much ensures a, you know, stable two-party equilibrium. So the tendency is always going to be divide the population roughly in half. The United States system, you know, kind of the oldest liberal democratic electoral system in the in the world, was designed in the you know, 1780s and 90s in a completely agricultural economy in a political context that was uh, obsessed with the relative power of, of, of slave and free states, and and our electoral institutions reflect that. And part of part of that reflection is in a very strong bias in our system toward toward the political power of less populous places. There's a big penalty for density built into our system. And you know, as Robin emphasizes that, you know, it's also just a natural function of density when when populations cluster really tightly together and you have a spatial system of representation and one party is the dense party and one party is the not dense party, the dense party's voters are going to be very inefficiently distributed and they're going to have a problem. Well, that problem is exacerbated by, you know, a constitutional structure that effectively gives a bonus to places that have smaller populations and and, and lower levels of population density. So, I, you know, I don't think we'd be in the problem that we're in without 
all of those factors lining up in the right way, you know, which at one level creates a, a reason to be optimistic. If you could, if you can just change that, that system even a little bit, it, it can force realignment. The Republican Party has really strongly, you know, it's doubled down on being the party of older, less educated, lower density white people. That is not a majority of the population. But Rodin says partisan segregation may not continue increasing, given it has little room to grow. There are even some mechanisms for a potential reversal. When you look at the at the just scatter plots of population density and voting, we're almost getting to the point where it's hard to imagine that the scatter plot could be any cleaner and you know the, the than it already is, and the and the, the you know the the correlation is getting pretty close to one. So I'm not sure it can go much higher, but there are some interesting countervailing forces that push in the direction of greater partisan mixing rather than segregation. And so one of those, and this is all stuff I think that Will has written about as well. One of them is is uh, is the suburbanization of minorities. That you know, there's this big movement of minorities from the central city to to suburbs that that looks a lot like the movement of whites uh, to, uh, from cities to suburbs um, generation ago. And that in 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 lots of cities like Houston and some other some even in cities like my hometown of St. Louis is actually leading to uh, to a more heterogeneous suburban communities. Uh, and at the same time, people who are moving for opportunity, if we look at where they're moving to, they're, they're moving to places like ex-urban Houston and Orlando and Phoenix, Austin. And these are places that um, are, are politically competitive and heterogeneous places, and they're, and they're becoming even, even more competitive and heterogeneous. So I don't see us kind of constantly moving to increasingly segregated environments. Uh, in, 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 in fact, uh, as we just become more and more suburbanized and we kind of continue to spread out, you could see the, the trend really moving in, in the other direction. And uh, in terms of the parties' coalitions, I have an argument that Will makes that I think also sounds, uh, sounds right to me is, is that uh, you know, it, it could very well be the case that uh, the, the kind of takeover of the Republican Party by, the, by, the, by, by Trump and, and, and Trump's uh, allies is um, you know, in 2018 created the appearance that that was not a very good uh, development for the Republicans in their desire to hold on to the suburbs that have kind of really been, when we talk about those pivotal districts in the middle of the distribution that have given this advantage to them over the last couple of decades, uh, if they start losing those places, they're in trouble. Uh, and so one could imagine the Republican Party Trying to change its strategy if it if it loses uh, this kind of goose that has been laying the golden egg in in uh, in these suburban areas. Both emphasize the need for more research. Rodin says we need to understand the mechanisms of polarization and the implications for the reversal of the party's economic bases. Disentangling treatment versus selection effects. I think there's a lot of good research to do there, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, room for creativity and understanding those things. Trying to get a better handle on mapping preferences at a very low level of geography, I think that's something that we can we can improve on. Another thing I wanted to point out that's that's related to all this that I think is a, is a potentially really fascinating change in U.S. politics that we've only really started to think about is that you know the the I think many people have pointed out that the support for Democrats is increasingly concentrated in counties 
that are relatively wealthy. And if we look at data from the IRS uh, on taxes, we see that something like two thirds of of uh, IRS income of you know tax uh, take in of income taxes comes from places that the, the very small number of counties that that voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. So essentially, we're creating a system in which the party of the left is the party that is paying into the system of uh, fiscal transfers. And this is true within states as well. So the party whose position is, uh, is essentially anti-government is the party whose voters, uh, at least when it comes to spatial fiscal flows, tend to be relatively dependent on government. And that's an interesting that creates an interesting dynamic and an interesting set of, of, uh, of um, dilemmas, I think, for the Republican Party in states like uh, Kansas and Kentucky that might be interesting to keep an eye on in, in, in the years ahead. How do they manage the, um, this, uh, this uh, desire to simultaneously to cut government, but also to avoid uh, angering places that are important to your base that uh, are, are where, where government employment is actually a pretty large share of the, of the employment base. And Wilkinson is focused on the understudied implications of urbanization and migration for politics. Urbanization is you know, a slow but utterly transformative social force. It just utterly remakes the nature of economic and social life all over the world. It, you know, just the movement of people from the countryside to cities everywhere over the past you know, two centuries, really, but mostly in the last century, it's just been this massive, just, just titanic, you know, force that's just just changed everything everywhere, and it seems like it would figure in more centrally to a lot of accounts of the things that are puzzling us about our politics. So I've been long interested in in, in the reasons that people migrate, as well as in ideas and social theory about how even you know little differences in individual preferences and abilities can lead to the clustering of like with like, and of course, bonding segregation of populations on those differences. So. Knowing that even small differences in tastes and preferences can separate populations on those differences, uh, it seemed natural to surmise that you know, tens of millions of individual moves from lower to higher densities over multiple generations could have disproportionately filtered certain types of people out of the country and lead to patterns of settlement that produce this striking relationship between population density and partisanship that has emerged. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Jonathan Roden and Will Wilkinson for joining me. Please check out Why Cities Lose and The Density Divide, and then listen in next time. 